0: Okay, hi everybody, I'm here with Leah Weiss. She is a PhD and a Stanford Business School professor, a corporate consultant, an author, a public speaker, and she's an expert in corporate mindfulness, compassion, and purpose. She's founding faculty member of the Dalai Lama's Compassion Cultivation Program at Stanford, which you all know I love. And her book, How We Work, Live Your Purpose, Reclaim Your Sanity, and Embrace the Daily Grind comes out in March of 2018. But you can pre-order it now and go get the audio version because that's my personal favorite to read audiobooks. So welcome,
1: Leah. Thank you so much for having me, Jen. I've been looking forward to this.
0: Me too. Leah, I've learned so much at the Center for Compassion and Altruism Research at Stanford. Can you tell us how you got involved in that project and kind of tell us a little bit about your path to get here?
1: Um, so, I was at Stanford as an undergrad, but that predated the Compassion Center, um, and I connected back up when I was doing my doctoral dissertation, and I had reached out to interview the Dalai Lama's interpreter, Tupten Jempa, um, for, um, I was writing about the application of compassion practice in secular contexts, and one of the areas of focus was, um, in vicarious trauma and healthcare providers. And so I was interviewing Jimpa and he's, you know, so wise and eloquent and thoughtful. And then at some point in the discussion, he started flipping it and asking me questions about, well, this is a very specialized area to be interested in. And what, you know, what brought you to this? Um, And I shared with him that I had been doing, um, 100 day meditation retreats in the Tibetan tradition um, and then going and doing a semester at school and then going back in and doing a meditation retreat and so I did that through my clinical social work training and then my doctoral training and you know he was asking more questions about how I was bringing them together and so I started telling him you know, the CEO of the mental hospital and Quincy that I was working at, um, started having me do trainings with their staff. And, you know, this other program that, um, through one of the Harvard, um, medical schools was also looking at this question because it was early days for compassion fatigue. So anyways, Jimpa says, you know, full stop, um, I need you to come out to California. Can you come in two weeks because we have this invitational retreat for the people I want to, um, train, um, others in this eight week program we've been developing and I need you to be there. And so while I'm talking to him, my 10 month old is lying on the ground kicking in her little gym and I'm like hoping she's not too loud because nobody's home to watch her while I'm talking with him. And so I'm looking at the baby. It was the first time we were going to have travels and I'm like, you know, how can you say no to that? So I was like, okay, great, Jimpa. Um, And I went out for that um, gathering with people like Kelly McGonigal and some other amazing folks who um, were just so inspiring and so forward-thinking in this work that um, by the end of that weekend, I was ready to move out and be their inaugural director of education. So, things happen fast after that. (laughs) Yeah. No,
0: I'm really intrigued by the term compassion fatigue. And I wonder if you could talk a little bit about that because I think it applies across everything.
1: Yeah. I was just lecturing about this this morning for a class I'm teaching for the UC system. They have a new initiative for their global studies um, scholars, and they're trying to buffer them with compassion work before they go out around the world into the field to do all kinds of incredible projects. Mm -hmm. And we were having this discussion today about how there's different frameworks for thinking about empathy or feeling with. Um, as opposed to compassion, um, which is recognizing suffering and responding to it and um, different ways of thinking about how these show up in our brains because, you know, based on people like Tanya Singer's work, it seems to look different when there's empathy versus compassion. Or someone like Roshi Joan Halifax's work, um, you know, she's got an amazing team, has been doing very high – intensity work and palliative care and health care for a long time and they're very adamant that this um an appropriate boundary is conducive for compassion and a lack of this kind of a boundary leads to the um overwhelm and and empathy fatigue Mm -hmm. um and and so on. So, you know, so someone like Roshi would say there's not empathy, there's not compassion fatigue, there's only empathy fatigue because compassion is a renewable resource. Um, so I think it's a, it's a really interesting thing just to not only see what the difference is, but what difference does that difference make to mm-hmm. us if we're doing care um, for others day in and day out, either professionally or just in our lives as human beings.
0: Yeah, yeah. And I, I think it's very hard for people to understand the difference between compassion and empathy and to really recognize it within themselves. And when you think about self-compassion, um, you know, that that can be even harder, <laughs> having empathy for yourself as opposed to compassion for yourself. That's a very confusing subject, and, and I struggle with it myself quite a lot. Um, and I can imagine that when you're talking about empathy and compassion at work, maybe that's even a little harder because we tend to lock up all those things when we go to work.
1: Yeah. You know, I just had Jeff Wiener, the CEO of LinkedIn, came to my class last week at the business school, and this has been an area he's been very outspoken in, as you know. And, um, you know, and, and when he was speaking about the difference between um, between being able to support someone in their struggle versus um, be confused about whose role is to do what, Um, Mm -hmm. those kinds of things. I can really see um, the students get curious about it and asking, you know, and talking to him in an organizational context, is it possible to fire someone with compassion? What might that look like? And hear a very sophisticated response, um, you know, around what, how compassion does look, not just for the individual who might be a mismatch, um, but what are the steps look like of informing them that they're not filling the role in the way you need them to and making it clear and having the courage to have that discussion rather than shying away from mm-hmm. it and make make clear um, what the path to them improving would look like and what the consequences of them not improving would look like and you know, really engaging with that person along the way with both candor and compassion um, and knowing that if the person isn't a good fit for that role, ultimately that's bad for them. It's bad for their family. It's bad for the team. It's bad for the company and none of this is easy. Um, So I agree. I think this is complex, but important set of questions for us to be asking.
0: Mm, Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. And I, I love the idea of actually giving a little thought to how do you let someone go or move them to another position, and making that very conscious so that it's not just a, okay, you suck, you're out of here. Um, that doesn't yes. help anybody, including you yourself, because nobody feels good when they do that. It isn't absolutely it's just not healthy for anyone. Um, I love the chapter on full catastrophe working, and I think this kind of segues into that a little bit because i want to have a an idea of how this translates at work but also at home you you talk about you know your kids actually getting involved with you know doing some meta practice or meta moments i think you call them
1: yeah it's such an um you know, I think for me, part of the impetus to write this book was really around when the rubber met the road, and I was no longer doing 100-day meditation retreats, and I was working full-time in one of the most expensive places, and have the three kids, and, you know, asking myself the questions of what do these practices look like mm-hmm. in this context, Um you know, and I really think about it. for people who have a seated meditation practice, we still have to ask ourselves how how are we bringing mindfulness and compassion into the rest of our relationships, especially the challenging work and roles that we have? Um, and then for the people who, you know, I'm sure there's many of you who are listening who are interested in this topic, but haven't really found that click with meditation yourself. So does that mean that there should be no role for mindfulness in your life? I, I don't think that at all. Um, right. So I think that this question of, um, you know, what does mindfulness then mean if we don't conflate it with, it's about sitting and meditating. If it's about having the intentional use of attention, mm. um, There's nothing in that definition that says eyes closed meditation and in fact I think there's been an overemphasis or confusion about meditation is a great way to develop these skills but it's always been seen as like the boat to get from point A to point B which is a more mindful way of living. and if we think it's just about being in the boat all the time, um, that's not going to work. I mean, we can't hide under our desks and not do our job functions. We need to figure out how to do the things we need to do. Mm-hmm. Um, and then when we're at home, how to be with the people that we want to be with rather than perceiving them to be between me and my meditation cushion. How am I listening to my kids or how, how is it impacting my patients with my year old's tantrum um, at the end of my long day um, and if compassion isn't showing up there then I don't know that it's doing a whole lot of good
0: right yeah absolutely and I, I think you know there there are a lot of aspects to meditation that people get very confused about they think that it's only on the cushion and it doesn't have to be it can be in one moment and I love the idea of using micro moments as something you can do in the office. In the book, you mention uh, a woman who takes a breath before she opens her email, and that's such a simplistic thing to do, but it's really just a way to focus and get here before you you know, enter the world of email and the 3,000 you have to delete and the four that actually matter and keeps you from responding or keeps you from reacting rather than responding, basically.
1: Yes. Yes. And I think this whole, you know, when the demands on our time are, um, you know, more and more of us are working over 55 hours a week and more and more of us don't have the clear divisions between the office and work and a life at home, which means that we need to have more of this ability to um, store our attention and our time, or we're going to suffer in our relationships will suffer. And I think these micro moments um, of intention setting and remembering what our purpose and our priorities are both as a human being and within the inbox and the list of things that we need to do um, because I, I just think there's more and more of the sense of overwhelm where people lose track of um of how do you know of the many things, the infinite things, which ones are best to spend your time on. And that takes having uh, this kind of context that I think these mindful moments throughout our day really help with moments of just sanity and context. And yeah.
0: Yeah. And just a place to get grounded, even if it's just for a second, that can keep us out of trouble a lot. (laughs) So tell me a little bit more about purpose and how we can apply that throughout our day. You know, we may feel, a lot of people seem to feel that they don't really have a purpose. You know, they they feel that they need to have some grand intention rather than, you know, intentions as they go through their day. So can we talk a little bit about how that can work at, at home and at work?
1: Yeah. And I think that mapping on the, the grand intention onto the activities of daily life is, is really the heart of it. Um, I think, well, first of all, I mean, I imagine some of the people who are listening, you know, could answer in a sentence or a paragraph, what is their, you know, capital P purpose? And I imagine a lot of folks can And um, then the question would come, like, how is important, how important is it to me Um, to have this sort of mission statement version of purpose. Um, And I would say that, you know, we all, that comes in different ways. And for some people, it might be a cause. And for some people, it might be relationships. And for some people, it might be, um, you know, something about learning and growing in the context of what we're doing. Um, and sometimes there are phases of life where we're just busy and we're trying to do what we need to do to take care of things. Um, you know, I feel like I, I just was visiting a friend yesterday who has a newborn and she's going to mm-hmm. be going back to work in six weeks. Like, I think her purpose, she's, she's got a big sort of social impact purpose in her life. But when she gets back to work, there's going to be a period of time where it's a pretty noble purpose to just survive working and having this infant waking her up every three hours, which is Mm -hmm. going to be a period of time. Um, So I don't like to impose a capital P purpose, but I think it is helpful for all of us to sort of think about what do we, if life is short, if we knew when our time was going to end, what would be the most important thing to contribute um, what do we want to be remembered for? Um, those kinds of questions can help. But then even once we have that, it's, you know, how does this map on to the day-to-day activities? And that's where I think one of these, um, thinking of purpose is a mindset that we can cultivate. Um, and the work of Amy Rosnetsky, who's a researcher at the Yale School of Management, who studies purpose, teaches a mandatory class for all first-year MBA students, she has this threefold schema that she talks about with purpose at work. So the first version of it is, I have a job, um, and my purpose is I go to work and I collect a paycheck. If I win the lottery today, I'm not going back tomorrow because I don't need that paycheck. Mm -hmm. Right. So that's like one mindset we could have. Another version of a mindset would be a career. So I go to my job today so that I learn skills and I can advance towards a trajectory I have in the future. Um, It's a different way of thinking about my job. And then there's a third that's a calling. So for someone who's a calling, they view their work as an expression of um, what's most meaningful that they can contribute in their life. Mm -hmm. And you might think like, oh, only someone who's developing a cure for cancer or working in a nonprofit would have that. Um, But actually there's great examples of people in all kinds of roles like a janitor in a hospital who has this mindset of a calling because they view themselves to be an instrumental part of the care team
0: Mm. that they
1: know if they don't do their job, well, people will die from infection, right? So they can cultivate this way of seeing their work and it's bigger impact. Um, So that's the kind of thing that I think is useful for us to be aware that we can do. And so then we look at purpose more as like a verb and, You know, if I came to this organization because I had a passion for this impact, I still need to do the work in my day-to-day. We're not spending all day thinking about that impact. There's stuff we've got to get done. So it's up to us um, to infuse as much as we can that sense of purpose and then to bring it into our teams and to bring it, you know, into the conversations, the best managers are ones who are not only tracking on how people are executing against goals, they're tracking on what are they passionate about, because that's the work that they're going to go the extra mile for. Um, So those kinds of things I see more organizations getting interested in, and then more people asking, well, how do I do this as an individual if I'm not in an organization that's planning in that way?
0: Mm -hmm. I love that idea of the janitor in the hospital for example because you know we can't all have these lofty jobs and sometimes people feel that they're simply not being fulfilled because they don't recognize the value that they add to society or to the workplace and uh, I think you know how can they find those things how can they recognize that in themselves so that they do feel better about what they do and where their their true purpose in that role is and maybe it's just to earn money to support their family that's also a
1: valid purpose right exactly exactly and that has immense dignity to it and i think then you know there's things that can be done where you know research one of the um, research studies that adam grant did and in folks working in telephone banks, um, mm-hmm. not changing externally what they're doing, but when those people bring in pictures and have more context for who they're serving, their perception of their work um, changes, and they, and they do their jobs more effectively. So I think this becomes like recognizing we're meaning-making creatures. Like we need. Um, and at the same time, when there's a sort of pandemic of disengagement in the workplace, um, you know, and there's some astounding figures like looking at um, research that suggests that um, 50 to 70 percent of people can't answer the question what their organization does and how their role fits in. So how can you expect for them to come to work with a strong sense of engagement and purpose when they don't really know why they're doing what they're doing? They're glad they have a job. Um mm. So I think there's a lot of steps we skip over when we're onboarding and when we're communicating in places of work, assuming things about what people know and understand that they might not, and then it's a bad cycle because nobody's, you know, going to be excited about saying, "Hey, what does this organization do anyway?" and "What's my job?" And the longer you don't ask, the more awkward um, it gets. So I think that. You know, there's a lot of things you can build in um, where you're you're continually exploring those questions and providing an opportunity for people to understand and also draw connections for themselves that will be meaningful for them and useful for the organization.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, I can really see that in a lot of roles. That certainly, I've had a lot of roles like that in the past. I'm sure everyone else has too. That you know, we're just like I just don't know why i'm here and uh yeah so and you know that brings me back to uh, say a mom who's gone back to work after having had a baby what role does guilt or maybe remorse play in staying on track and maybe reminding ourselves what that true purpose is
1: yeah Well, and I think there's no doubt that it can be these periods of acute pain, you know, right when we go back from having a baby or, you know, I think of one moment that really stands out to me when I was working in a um, R&D organization and a mom of like a six-year-old, you know, PhD psychology, um, you know, had such a phase of such difficult drop-offs for her daughter that, You know, every day she'd show up at work in tears um, because it's this ongoing question of like, am I harming this person I love because I'm working all the time and I have to work? So it's not really a a choice, but it feels, um, it feels awful. It feels hard. And, And it's a hard way to start your day every day to like peel the kid off of your leg and leave them and have them beg you not to work. And, you know, especially I think for a lot of, um, of, of mothers, we are hearing our kids say things like, well, there's so many of the other mommies don't work. If you live somewhere like Palo Alto and, um, you know, having, how do you, there's a lot of great things you can bring to the table mommy or daddy has a job that I, I love and I contribute and it's important to me and, you know, saying all those things. But still, when you're facing the, the kid that is in emotional distress, it's hard, it's hard. It's really hard. and I love to see companies like Patagonia doing some out-of-the-box thinking around, you know, what would happen if they brought in after school activities at the company and build in like a milk and cookies half hour break and then, you know, things like that, like experimenting with what if we change around what organizations have available for employees and their families in a way that creates a point of connection in the mid afternoon and then the home commute is together um, I like to see those kinds of creative approaches. I think it's definitely a step in the right direction.
0: Yeah. Yeah. I think so too. Okay. So talk to us. I'm going to segue a little bit, sort of not really talk to us about awareness prompts and how we can use that to be more aware throughout our day as opposed, because I would love to take a hundred day meditation. Actually, I'd love to take a, a 30-day meditation break <laughs> ain't gonna happen right now so as we go through our days you know if even if we sit on the cushion in the morning and then we get up and go to work and forget about it for the rest of the day it's not really helping us right I mean it helps us for 20 minutes or an hour or whatever it is but as we go through our days I love the idea
1: of awareness prompts and, and let's let's follow that up a little bit sure so you know, one of the ways I've been developing this in the um, sort of traditional Tibetan compassion trainings, there are these slogans that you learn and you use. um, And there are things like, um, this time, try something different, which means like, instead of doing the same habit, that's not serving you, try an alternate path. There's, there's all these different, um, slogans that have teachings associated with them that you would learn and then pop up in the context of your life. Mm. Kind of like a matrix moment where you have a space (laughs) between, you know, something happening and you're reacting to it and you see other options. Mm. So what I've been really interested in is um, putting in these prompts in just in routines or rituals that we have in our life, things that we're already doing. So you know, if it's a password on our phone that it's a reminder to breathe, or um, if we're drinking that glass of water, um, that that can be a reminder we're setting ourselves to um, to stop and be in our body and take a moment of awareness. When we're walking um, into a meeting, or every time we stand up, or every time we sit down, like picking something that is a physical um uh, cue Throughout our day, I've heard um, physicians talk about sanitizing between patients. So it's just it's their mm-hmm. reminder that they're on their way out, they're leaving that interaction behind. On their way in, they're mentally showing up for the patient they're about to meet with. Um, so depending on what our our day looks like, and then you know building in things like on our commute that we have. A, a minute, if not the whole time in silence or um, in our exercise, I'll often negotiate with my graduate students saying, you know, okay, you can watch your show while you're on the elliptical for like 30 minutes, but give yourself one or five of just quiet and being in your body as anchoring your attention in the physicality before you do your space out and mm-hmm. see what that does for you. Or if you're doing something like swimming, maybe you do it the whole time. Um, so really excavating our day and thinking like, where are these places? Um, for me, a huge one has been when I get home at the end of the workday, right? Like so hard to kind of leave behind, not check one last email or be scattered when I'm greeting my kids. Mm -hmm. So one of the things that we've done is like, my kids love seasonal decorations. And so they're changing. So they capture my attention. So that becomes my reminder when I get to the front door that there's um, this physical reminder that i then think about i'm entering my home like i want to show up and be present to these little crazy people i'm about to encounter (laughs) and the mayhem that's about to ensue (laughs) take a breath
0: before you open the door (laughs) i think that's a really beautiful idea and something that people can use in so many ways you know um i think one of the ones that that I've heard about, you know, starting meetings is just when you walk in and you're about to sit down, put your hands on the back of the chair and just like, okay, I'm here now. And I think those little things that we can do, it only takes a second. I think people think that, you know, if they're going to use mindfulness at work, that they have to meditate before a meeting. Well, that's great. But it depends on how you define meditation. It could just be that one micro moment. and it, and that's so powerful. And then you can build those up throughout your day. And and now all of a sudden you spent 20 minutes and you didn't have to sit on the cushion. Maybe that's not your thing. You know, some people it just it isn't. But uh yeah, I, I think I think it's pretty interesting. And I, I have one last thing I wanted to talk to you about, and I could go on. This could be a very long conversation, <laughs> but one of the things I found in the book that really resonated with me is talking about emotional stuffing and kind of being very submissive about things, whether it's at work or with a partner or with the kids. You know, I was an inveterate stuffer up until a couple of years ago, really, where, you know, I'd be like, okay, I'll just take that and someday I'll deal with it. And then I didn't. And that's changed the more I've paid attention and realized, you know, what's going on and that whole process. So talk a little bit about the damage that stuffing does to us. I know that it actually damages us at the cellular level. So that's a big question.
1: <laughs> yeah. I can't picture you as a stuffer. Did your sense of humor get better after you stopped stuffing? I've
0: been a smart ass. My entire life I've been a smartass.
1: Sometimes that's internal.
0: <laughs> uh huh. Yeah.
1: Um, so... You know, I think part of what has become really evident is that the amount of cognitive resources it takes us to um, to s- suppress emotion and um it's. If we're feeling something big we can't think we can't work it's taking everything we've got to engage with those emotions and the act of suppression doesn't actually metabolize the emotions. so it's just there for another time or just poking in on the balloon and um, and that's why we will have these, in, at the worst possible moment, if we've been stuffing and stuffing, then that moment of anger or the bursting into tears at the worst possible time will eventually happen. Mm-hmm. And there's, you know, there's the cognitive load co- issue for us that it's taking so many of our resources. And we all know the experience of when we're really upset. We can't think. We can't work. There's just, there's no... Um, And, you know, the issue is when we're also, when we're suppressing, there's issues for our body, for our heart, for our genes, um, for our inflammation, it creates this upregulation in our bodies that becomes chronic if we don't, um, work through it. And, you know, one of the things I've been getting really interested in as well is the role of self-criticism in this process Mm -hmm. of intensifying the, um, the dynamic of the negative emotions that are we can't face because not only are the emotions difficult to feel but then the self-criticism that we're going to layer on um, and just that our bodies are interpreting all of this as an ongoing threat. Um, so it becomes a real physical as well as productivity question. And then, of course, there's like this whole interpersonal aspect um, You know, when we, we have a pretty good sniff test for when people are inauthentic and if we're working with someone who, you know, is stuffing their emotions, we know that we don't know what's going on with them and that does not engender um, a desire to collaborate or to share our experience, it makes us mistrustful and fearful. So, you know, I think often people will talk about in a professional context, like I need to keep it buttoned up and be professional, but actually someone who has a good handle on their emotions and in an appropriate way can express them and be authentic. They're going to have a lot more success in leadership of all kinds. Because um, people will trust them, people will know where they are, people will disclose to them. Doesn't mean we want like all of our leaders in the workplace to be a hot mess, but there's something between stuffing and throwing the chair at the wall when we're angry, and in that space is where authentic leadership can happen. <laughs>
0: mm-hmm. I I can really hear that. When I was working in restaurants, we worked. I worked with a chef who was Swiss and very traditionally trained, and we called him the screaming pan thrower. It was really insane. He would literally pitch a pan at your head if you weren't. And and so that from a leadership standpoint, you know, stuffing, it can make you crazy and make you un, someone that people don't trust or are afraid to tell what's going on because you think they're going to go off all the time. And it isn't that they're necessarily angry people. It's that they're constantly trying to control themselves and then they go off. So you don't tell them anything. So when a, if a leader hears that about themselves, how do they, how do they manage that? How can they start to turn that around and how they deal with their team?
1: Yeah, I think, you know, the steps of emotional intelligence really begin with our ability to recognize, narrate our own emotions. And then there's a lot of different ways that can play out interpersonally. Um, but I think, you know, learning to actually track on what I'm feeling in different environments, that is you know, just second nature to a lot of people, and to many other people, they don't know what they're feeling. They're working. They're focused on the problem or the content, and they're not simultaneously having the meta-awareness of what's going on within them, which puts them um, at a disadvantage for being able to uh, communicate emotions in a way that's authentic and connective. Mm. So I think that first step really is um, learning of vocabulary for what's going on within your own body and mind, um, and then learning the vocabulary of what to do with that.
0: Yeah. <laughs> you yeah. Know, and, yeah. In a way, it kind of makes them more vulnerable, doesn't it?
1: It does. And I think people need to find ways to experiment with you know there's something um there's there's small risks we can take in expressing how we're feeling and how we're doing um that are not treating everyone we encounter like they're the therapist in our 50 minute session but you know instead of just saying i'm fine it's good you can you know, divulge a little bit and see how that feels or, you know, notice the relationships where we're really withholding um, our humanity and be curious about that and see if there's, you know, more, a little bit more we can experiment with doing and revealing um, and does the world end or is what happens to that relationship, what happens to me? Um, so that's the way I, I encourage people to really think in, like, small steps, make a little challenge for yourself of, um, you know, and it can simply be taking those opportunities to answer and also ask others, like, how are you really doing? And, yeah. and actually, like, people know the difference if you're just expecting to say, I'm fine and move on, versus, like, you really want to hear something about them, and that you know, rehumanizing relationships at work and beyond, I think, is um, is an amazing opportunity that doesn't take a ton of time, and we can feel our way into.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah, and I think people are demanding it more as we become more aware ourselves. We're expecting that of our leaders, and we're staying longer at places where we have leadership that we feel have more humanity. So it's... It's interesting to see how things are changing.
1: Yeah, and that's absolutely, you know, I know my students at the business school, this is one of the things they're really asking about. I mean, it's funny, a lot of the organizations are still on, like, what are the perks and what's the updated version of the ping pong table? But, the, you know, a lot of the students re-entering the workforce, they want to know, how do I recognize a compassionate organization? How do I recognize a place where I can... um, really get and give authentic, candid, compassionate feedback, because I know that's what I need to learn. So how do I recognize that? Mm -hmm. And that's the place I want to go. That's interesting to me.
0: Yeah, I just love hearing that. (laughs) Not my generation, but I'm taking it (laughs) anyway. Thank you so much for taking the time for this today. As I said, I I could talk to you for a very long time, but I I really appreciate you taking the time and I really encourage people, get the book, go pre-order it, pre-order the Audible, or print, whatever. (laughs) But I'm really glad that I got to read it. I enjoyed it so much. Thank
1: you. Thank you so much for having me. It's been such a pleasure to chat with you today.